Morning. You know, uh, there's no coincidences uh, in this life. My wife told me that the other day. And uh, yes, she is. Don't tell her. <laughs> but, uh, you know, everything God does, everything that happens, happens for a reason. I've got a little deal here I'd like to share with you. It's called uh, The Preacher and the Stranger. We don't have much here, but you're welcome to it all. The preacher told the stranger at the door, Come sit down by this fire and let the coffee warm you up. I can't say I've seen it rain this hard before. Stranger said, I saw your sign as I was walking down the road and I figured that a church might be the safest place to go. Well, son, crosses sure get heavy and we've all got one to bear. And if you're looking for a shelter from the storm, you'll find one here. Well, they sat and talked for hours there in that little church about how life's unfair sometimes and trying to make sense of how God works. Preacher said, I lost my son one summer. He was only 25. A drunk driver crossed that double yellow line. And I prayed so hard to Jesus to save my only son. Seems like all I do these days is question why. Now I stand here every Sunday and preach to everybody else. I talk a lot about forgiveness, but I can't do that myself. I don't, some crosses sure get heavy. We've all got one to bear, and I don't know why I'm telling you all this, or if you even care. Well, they sat and talked for hours. They're in that empty church about how life's unfair sometimes trying to make sense of how God works. Tears filled the stranger's eyes. He said, I know I've changed a lot. I might be hard for you to recognize. But late one summer night, I'd had too much to drink. I got behind the wheel and changed both of our lives. I'm sorry just ain't good enough when you've hurt someone like that. And if I could, God knows I'd give my life to bring him back. Preacher, crosses sure get heavy, and we've all got one to bear. And I'm here to ask forgiveness, if you even care. Well, they sat and talked for hours there in that empty church about how life's unfair sometimes and trying to make sense of how God works. Thank you. Um, if you want to get your Bibles out, uh, or text this morning is Mark 15, verse 21 to 39. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, 
a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others himself, he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Join me in prayer, please. Father, so we're about to hear your word this morning and after we we're done here singing praises to you. Lord, we ask please that your Holy Spirit come down and open our hearts and our minds that we can be filled and walk in your ways. Please, in Jesus' name we pray. Bless this message. Amen. Amen. How many guys got saved the last couple of weeks? Like six guys? Yeah? 
He don't want to put no numbers on it. The preacher ain't come out at him yet. <clears throat> but guys are getting saved, man, in jail ministry. And, and uh, I've been super blessed that Jason and Jonathan went and got the, the red door kicked off. And, uh, you know, have an opportunity. I can guarantee you one thing. Nothing will ever change if you don't go. No one will ever turn around. I can tell you, if, if you don't go... That fellow in jail not going to get saved. But if you do, then you might get the chance to be a part of something great. And God's been doing that. Once upon a time, I first got here, I had to chase fellas out to the parking lot. I say amen, and they were out that back door so fast. I, I didn't get a chance to tell nobody about too much of anything else. But God's been doing some neat stuff. And the the empowerment and the, the blessing and the anointing that uh, that God has here at Calvary Chapel Buell and the thing that he's doing, raising up men. I mean, I know God's doing great things with the ladies too, but since I'm not one, I'll let my wife preach about their greatness. But the guys, man, guys are doing awesome. I'm really stoked for where we're headed and, and what God's doing. Yeah. It's exciting. Yeah. And when we look at the scripture today, it, it's uh, to me, it's this is the apex i guess of uh of the gospel of mark at least we're coming to it verse 39 as far as i'm concerned is the is the bookend that goes with verse one chapter one of mark and and uh you see the the proclamation some really exciting things that god has for us in here so let's unpack some of those and look at it together so we come to mark chapter 15 verse 21 it says this then they compelled a certain man Simon the Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear the cross. And they brought him to the place, Golgotha, which is translated place of the school. And then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they had crucified him, they divided the, the, his garments, casting lots for them, determining what every man should take. Now it was the third hour when they crucified him. Crucifixion is an event fixed in history. It's plugged firmly into history, and we know that because as Mark is laying it out for us, he gives us all the details. He gives us all these details. For example, men of history, Simon the Cyrene. Not, not only does he name Simon, but he names his two sons, Alexander and Rufus, who we see later on in Scripture that became pillars of, uh, of the church. And how that happened... It's interesting, probably one of my favorite songs, how that happened was put together in a song, and just so happens that I brought it with me today. So we're going to play a video for you guys right now. You can see Simon the Cyrene and Alexander and Rufus. Walking on the road to Jerusalem Time had come to sacrifice again My two small sons They walked beside me on the road The reason that they came Was to watch the land Daddy, Daddy What will we see there? 
Then his hand reached for his sword And so I knelt and took the cross from the Lord I placed it on my shoulder And started down the street The blood that he'd been shedding Was running down my cheek They led us to Golgotha They drove nails deep in his feet and hands And yet upon the cross I heard him pray Father, forgive them I seen such love in any other eyes. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. He prayed, and then he died. I stood for what seemed like years. I've lost all sense of time until I felt two tiny hands. Holding tight to mine My children stood there weeping I heard the oldest say Father please forgive us Let Ran away What have we seen here? There's so much that we don't understand So I took them in my arms And we turned and faced the cross Then I said, dear children Watch the Scripture lays out for us, Alexander and Rufus became pillars of the church, and uh, sometimes you think it's such a little thing, I mean, Simon the Cyrene, he, he helped carry the cross, but it actually led to uh, a family's radical change in the direction, and uh, early two pillars of the early church in his sons. So the scripture tells us, fixed in history, Simon the Cyrene, we got a name, Alexander and Rufus, his kids, his mother's even mentioned. In Romans 16, 13, it says, to greet Rufus, uh, who was chosen by the Lord, and his mother and mine. So Paul was, was uh, uh, uniquely aware of the family, he even had a relationship with their mom. It's uh, etched in history because it was taken to a real place, Golgotha. Been there. There's a bus stop there. You can stand at the bus stop. In fact, people who live there go catch a bus out outside Golgotha and don't even pay attention to the to the skull etched in the stone behind them anymore. They went to a real place 
Real people were involved. We see that it took place in real time. Nine o'clock in the morning. Jesus is on the cross. So you see what I was saying earlier about the trial. Rush. Quick. All night. Early morning to Pilate. Get it done. Scourging happens by 9 a.m. Some of the some of the people who would have been supporters of Jesus probably just getting up. Just getting going in the day. It's Passover time. You don't have a crucifixion around Passover. Unless the Lamb of God's involved. 9 a.m. He's, he's up on the cross. He's placed there. And then it has this phrase. I just It says in three little words. They crucified Him. They crucified Him. I found this uh, description. I'm just going to read it quickly for you. Just so you can kind of get your mind around it. It says, Simon was ordered to place the, the patibulum, which is the cross member. That would have been what they actually carried. Uh, on the ground. And Jesus is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist and drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side, repeats the same action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexion and movement. Then the cross member is lifted in place at the top of the stipes, which is the vertical beam. The left foot is pressed back against the right foot with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees moderately flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in the wrists, excruciating fiery pain shoots along the fingers, up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves as he pushes himself upward to avoid this. Uh, the wrists are put into pressure and uh, stretching torment. He places his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there is searing agony in the nail, tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones at the feet. At this point, another phenomenon occurs. As the arms fatigue, Great waves of cramps sweep over his muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. So air can be brought into the lungs, but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights uh, to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to ex exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a deep, crushing pain deep in the chest, as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It's now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids have reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a, making a frantic grasp 
uh, to get in gulps of air. And the body of Jesus is uh, in extremis. And he can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissue. His mission of atonement has been completed. Finally, he can allow his body to die. Verse 26 tells us that they made an inscription. An inscription of his accusation was written. If we look at each of the four Gospels, it lets us know what was written. But here in Mark, he says, that was written above him, the King of the Jews. They also crucified two robbers, it says, one on the right, the other on the left. So the scripture was fulfilled, saying that he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him. They wagged their heads and said, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with a scribe, said, He saved others, but himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. So you have a series of mockings that take place. First, the sign. They place a sign over his head. The King of the Jews. That's where they would put the crime. But you remember, there was no crime for Jesus. They had already declared him innocent three separate times. So they just put simply a sign over his head describing who he was. Literally, or typically, what the Romans would do is they would begin the phrase with the words, This is. This is. And over Jesus' cross, if we look at, if we look at all of the writings that we have in the Gospels, what was written on his cross was, Yeshua HaNazaret VeMelech Yahudam. In fact, the priests, the chief priests, were upset. So I just want you to picture, you got the... The main stake, and you have one word on each line coming down the main stake over Jesus' head. Yeshua, Hanatzeret, Jesus of Nazareth. Vemelech Yahudim, King of the Jews. The reason the chief priests were so upset is because it formed an acronym the way they placed it on the sign. Y H. V H Yehovah Yahweh What was his crime? It was God in the flesh on the cross. He had come to to provide for us and we see that even more as we continue to work our way through the story. But then on either side of him were robbers. In fact, the Greek word used for robber is really the word insurrectionist. Insurrections. You got two guys, one on each side. I just want you to think with me. Just just last week we talked about there was another insurrectionist. What was his name? Yeah, remember the crowd called for him instead of Jesus? Remember all Barabbas' buddies were there hoping that maybe he'd get set loose? Well, the robbers on either side had to have been the other part of Barabbas' clan who had tried to start a rebellion. Same word used for each, for Barabbas and these robbers. So two guys that had been with Barabbas, they're on either side of him. And they're mocking Jesus. They're mocking him. And you have onlookers. And the onlookers come up and they say, save yourself. Come down off that cross. If you're really the king, if you're really the Messiah, if you're really who you say you are, we can't kill you. So they comfort themselves by saying, there's no way this could really be God in the flesh. 
Because God in the flesh would never allow himself to be placed on the cross. Then the scripture goes on. Verse 33, it says, Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth. So we began on the third hour. It's going to end after six hours on the cross. Darkness after three. So this darkness falls. There's no explanation for the darkness. Except what the scripture, I think, is laying out for us. We look at it. But it says, At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just chew on that for a minute. Chew on this. He didn't say, Oh, my aching back. Oh, my hands, my hands, my feet, my feet, my head. He just said, my God, my God. Why was there darkness over the earth for three hours? We can't even begin to fathom. We, we often think that the excruciating part of the cross was what Jesus went through physically. Well, look, that's not what Jesus spent the hours in Gethsemane praying for. What he spent the hours in Gethsemane praying for was what he was experiencing right then. Can you imagine having a love that had existed forever? So far back in the past that you can never reach the beginning of it. You had had this connection, this relationship, this incredible, intense love that was experienced between a father and his son. And when the darkness came, something changed. And I think that darkness symbolizes what was happening. And that darkness symbolizes what takes place in our lives as well. The darkness comes down. Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi. The people don't understand it. They say, oh, he's crying out for Elijah. Man, he's, he's speaking their language. He's, he's, he's talking in Aramaic. They, they, that was a common tongue. But they think he's calling for Elijah. So they run in and they get him a sponge of sour wine and put it on a reed. And they give it to him to drink. And they say, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes. Just another joke. Let's see if Elijah really comes. When a rabbi wanted to take his students to a certain section of scripture, he would sit down before his students and he would say the first sentence of whatever section of scripture he wanted them to study they would take that and they would go and read if we follow those same examples when we look at what jesus said on the cross with eloi eloi lama sabachthani it takes us to psalm 22 just take a moment i'm not going to read the whole thing but take a moment to listen psalm 22 My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you, delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm, no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out their lip, they shake their head, and they say, He trusted in the Lord, let Him rescue him. Let Him deliver him, since He delights in him. But you are He who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast on you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, the strong bulls of Bashan. They have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging, roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax and has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. We want to know what Jesus was thinking and feeling at the cross. The Holy Spirit inspired David, the shepherd, to write the 22nd Psalm. That 800 or better years later, Jesus would point to and say, that's it. That's what's happening. That's what's going on. This is the the excruciation because now, and I want you to notice something. I want you to recognize whenever Jesus talked of the Father or whenever Jesus talked of Almighty God, He used this phrase, My Father, My God. But when the disciples came to him and said, teach us to pray, how did he tell them to pray? Our Father. There's a different relationship between the Son and the Father and you and I and the Father. We're adopted. We're brought into the family as a result of the sacrifice Jesus Christ makes. But it's not one by... by, uh, nature of a relationship that has existed for all eternity. Jesus is looking up to the Father, to to His God. To the one who had sent Him. And listen, the Father is not responding. He's not talking. Well, how come? Well, the darkness, I think, symbolizes that moment when all the horrific sin of the world descended on the cross. And he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And in that moment, 
in some way, I can't explain it, God's transcendent. He's a little bit outside of our natural reasoning. But in some way, the Father and the Son, for the first time in eternity, were separated. God will not look on sin. And the Son, for the first time in all of eternity, finds Himself not in the place of the loving relationship that they had always experienced, but in the place of wrath. Where the wrath of God was poured out on sin. The very next verse tells us, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and He breathed His last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to the bottom. So then the centurion who stood opposite him saw that that he cried out like this. And he breathed his last. And he said, truly, this was the Son of God. So then we come to the death. Jesus cried out and died. What's going on with the darkness? The darkness is spiritual darkness. The sin of the world pictured descending upon him. And that spiritual darkness is is similar to this. The idea is taught throughout Scripture that we should live our lives in the centrality of God. That God is center in our life. And if God is center in our life, it's like our headlights are out in front. Remember that the Lord told the children of Israel to put His Word like frontlets over their eyes, on their hands, so that they would have the Word of God guide what they do. They would have the Word of God direct them where they would go. That God was central is, is how we are find ourselves in a place where we're not in spiritual darkness. But the darkness coming down on Jesus represents that there's a broken relationship between man and God. And man and God find themselves in a place, or man finds himself in a place where he, he doesn't know where to go and what to do. And he can't even recognize the Son of God there standing before him. Why? Because God's not central. There's a lot of things that can take the place. But when something else is central in our life other than God Himself... There's three things that we see come out of that. We see that that spiritual darkness brings disorientation. No headlights. You don't know where to go. You don't know where to turn. You don't know who's an enemy. You don't know who's a friend. So the first symptom, if you will, uh, or description of spiritual darkness is there's disorientation. Don't know where I'm at. Then... It also brings a loss of identity. So not only do I not know where I'm at, I don't know who I am. Because I don't really know who I am until I know who I am in Christ. I don't care how many people write a self-help book to help you find yourself. Until I know myself in Christ, I don't know myself. And the third thing, we have isolation. Spiritual darkness... Spiritual darkness descending over the world. Think about what all the people felt. Disoriented. Loss of identity. Isolation. You don't think if you're standing outside on a perfectly sunny day, this is not an a eclipse, by the way. Passover happens at the full moon. No eclipse. So you have this event taking place, this 
This man up on a cross, people yelling at him, mocking him, making fun of him. Boom, it goes dark. All the wickedness of mankind is placed upon his shoulders. That symbolizes the struggles we have in life. With disorientation and a lack of identity and a feeling of isolation. Because we want to have something else central. We chase something else. Instead of placing God where He needs to be. Who gives us all of those things. But then what is symbolized by the darkness, guys, is that God is taking that spiritual darkness that is on us. And He is now putting it upon His Son. He's laying that that spiritual darkness, that, that separation, that sin upon His Son. Think about him. He's sitting there on the cross and he's been rejected by the people. He's a man without a country. He's being sacrificed for political expediency. I don't really want to do what's right. Remember Pilate? He's a victim of injustice. He's been abandoned by all his closest friends. He's been tortured and now he's being killed. Everything is coming down on him in that darkness. And Jesus Christ is getting judgment day you know that thing we read about in the bible the scary thing we we find ourselves if we look ahead to the book of revelation and we read some of those things it's scary that day when the earth melts with a fervent heat and god stands on his judgment throne and men stand before him that's a scary day that's what's happening at the cross when darkness falls three hours in our time from, the, from all eternity, the scripture lays out for us. As horrible as it is to have a spear in your side, as horrible as it is to die by suffocation, as horrible as it is to be tortured and beaten, the crown of thorns, nails through your hands and feet, that doesn't say a thing about this true pain. It's like a flea bite Jesus is experiencing judgment day. The cosmic horror of uncreation is coming down on him. The judgment day that we deserve. He took it all. All upon him. Jesus receives our darkness. But then comes the light. Because Jesus dispels the darkness. It was dark three hours until Scripture says Jesus cried out and gave up his spirit. When Jesus gave up his spirit, we can see that he dispels the darkness. And there's two specific signs at the end of the passages we just read that point to what just took place. The very first one, you remember, says the veil was torn. The veil was torn. The veil. The veil is torn because the sacrifice to end all sacrifices just occurred. Up until this moment in history, on a real day with real people, in order for men to approach God, one man was chosen out of a priestly line, had to give several sacrifices. One day of the year, he could pass through the veil and stand in the place where the Shekinah of God dwelt. And he would come into that place and he would sprinkle the blood on the, on the hilasterion. The hilasterion, the, the mercy seat, 
where you had two angels looking like they were ready to come down and, and judge sin. And as they're looking down toward one another at the top of the, of the Ark of the Covenant, that's where they would place the blood. And the blood would cover God's judgment for the sin of man. In the box is all the symbols through the history of Israel of their rebellion and failure against God. You have the two tablets of the law, which they always broke. You have bread from heaven, a bowl that had bread from heaven that they called, what's that? You had Aaron's rod that budded, which symbolized the rebellion of the people against the, the, the man God had called to lead. All inside a box that would have upon it, sprinkled in blood, the blood of a lamb, and then the judgment, looking down on that failure of mankind, would be held over. Charged to a charge account that one day would be paid by the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You know that Paul writes to us that Jesus has become our hilasterion. Same word. Jesus is our mercy seat. Jesus is the blood placed between the two where the two cherubim are looking down expecting to bring judgment at the failure of mankind. Because mankind breaks the one rule God has. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know what the second rule is? They're both in the book of Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's not New Testament. That's Old Testament law. So you have this thing, this thing that God's called. But we remember we said, we're not central on God. We're central on something else. We're central on self. We're central on, on money. We're central on something. So, so God sent His Son to come and take the spiritual darkness upon Himself so that if man would lay it down, would recognize who He is, would bow the knee to God, that that spiritual darkness could be lifted and the disorientation goes away. And the loss of identity goes away. And the feeling of isolation goes away. Because now we have a relationship with God Almighty that you can't even begin to express. And if you have that, you already know it. But if you don't, you already know that too. So what happened to, sh to show us what was done? At the end of three hours of darkness, the veil is torn from the top to the bottom. God grabbed the hold of the veil, that place through which one man came one day of the year to offer a sacrifice, and he ripped it. And he said, now it's open wide. Once upon a time, only one man could enter one day a year. Now, whosoever will can come. The door's open. And you know who the first person was who walked through it? Was the same centurion that hammered the nails in his hands. The same one who put the spear through his side. Scripture says when he saw how he died, he said, Surely this was the Son of God. He's seen a lot of people die. You know how you became a Roman centurion? You survived the legions. It means you, you, you were grafted into the, to the Roman army and you started as a little private. I don't know if that's what they called them, but you guys know what I mean. You started as a little guy that they used like a pawn 
to throw at the bad guys. And when enough pawns die and the bad guys tired, then they come in with a, the better part of the army. So you start there and you survive. And you survive by killing people and killing people. You see death every day. You've seen the most gruesome things you can ever imagine. You've done the most gruesome things you can ever imagine. And you've done whatever you needed to do to survive. And you did it for so long that they took you as an enlisted man and they lifted you up and they made you an officer and they called you a centurion. Nowhere in the Bible is a centurion ever described in a wicked way. And as a centurion, the closest thing for me in the Marine Corps was a gunny. To me, a centurion was a gunny. Master guns, if you want to go that far, but same idea. When I was in the Marine Corps, gunny was, was like my, don't ever, if you're a gunny, I'm sorry. But gunny was grandpa of the Marine Corps. He was grandpa. When all the problems, when you were having trouble, when life was all crazy, you went to grandpa. You sat down. He'd been in the Marine Corps so long, he had a thousand stories to tell you. And he would give you the encouragement you needed to keep you going. That's a centurion. Who happened on this day to be in charge of a crucifixion of a guy who said he was a king. He don't know nothing about him. But he watched how he died. He's there as he hears the incredible words. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He saw as John and the mother of Jesus were below the cross. And Jesus would say, Mother... Behold your son. Son, behold your mother. So that John would take responsibility for Jesus' mom for the rest of her life. He saw the concern in his eyes for others. He saw how he dealt with the people who were mocking him. Because I tell you, you put me on a cross and mock me, I'm going to spit at you, I'm going to yell at you, I'm going to say things I'm probably not be proud of, but I don't, I don't like being mocked. Do you like it? And the difference is, the dude's mocking me, probably be speaking the truth. But the guy's mocking Jesus, that's not the truth. The truth is on the cross. All that mocking, all that they, he saw how he dealt with it all. Then he heard him say this word, Te telestai. Paid him full. And as he says, I don't know, I don't have a video of it. But in my mind, the darkness starts to lift. Because the price is paid. And just like that doctor described, Jesus can feel the pangs of death coming. He knows it's happening. And then he says this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now just prior to that, the same robbers that Mark tells us that were mocking him, one of the robbers even starts to notice, right? There's something different. So he repents on the cross. Remember what Jesus says to him? Oh, today you will be with me in paradise. The centurion's listening to it all. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he dies. Man, that was a crazy day. I don't know if the centurion won the, the robe that they were casting lots for or not. All I know 
is that the first person who recognized that there's a possibility to lift the spiritual darkness in my life was that centurion. And he said, that's the son of God. Just so you know, centurions didn't throw that around. Son of God, you might say, oh, he's just a pagan. Son of God, what's that mean to him? That's a title only for Caesar. Pinch of incense, at least once a year, Caesar is God. Caesar is God. Kaiser Kyrios. Kaiser Kyrios. Caesar is Lord. So, he's standing on that hill and declaring, Jesus is God. Jesus is King. Jesus is Sovereign. And you have a radical, the beginning of a radical change. That's why I think that's the apex of Mark. That's the apex. It starts with the story of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then here at the cross, we have the centurion pointing up and saying, surely this was the Son of God. Now there's a lot more to the story, right? We still got some more to go. I promise we'll get there, but not today. Today, today we have seen enough the death of Jesus Christ was unique it was beautiful it was tender and if you're here today and you are experiencing spiritual darkness you can have your darkness lifted you can have your hardness melted because that centurion was a hard man You can have your life changed just like that man's life was changed. If you consider that cry that Jesus made. My God. My God. Why hast thou forsaken me? You realize there's an answer to that question. You ever thought about that? What's the answer to the question? The answer is for me. He was forsaken for me. He was forsaken for you. He was forsaken for us. We can answer the question. And if today you find yourself maybe in a place where you've been going through struggle or suffering, you you have committed your life to the Lord, but you're questioning why these things are happening to you, you have an answer there too. I can tell you what it's not. It cannot be because God doesn't love you. It cannot be because God doesn't have a plan for you. It cannot be because God has abandoned you. He abandoned Jesus, so He would never have to abandon you. It was for me. That's why. And if we bow the knee, repent, And believe. He lifts that darkness. Now I know where to go. I'm following Jesus. Now I know who I am. I'm a disciple of Christ. And I'm not isolated, man. I got brothers and sisters all over the world. Everywhere I've ever been. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's pray.
Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word and for what your son has accomplished for us. And God, I just pray, Lord, as we look at the scripture, that we we don't just look at a story, something we think exists out in fairy tale land somewhere in a land far away, but we recognize this story is rooted in history. Real people involved, real time takes place, real events going on. It transformed the whole Roman Empire. It transformed all of Europe. It transformed the United States. It will transform life anywhere where it is allowed to rule in the lives of men and women. If men will bow the knee and put God's center to turn from their sin and receive forgiveness. Man, anywhere that has happened, life is radically transformed. But sometimes you stand outside a door where a woman is headed to kill her unborn child. And with tears running down their face, they walk by. Still dark. Still disoriented. Still don't know who they are. Still feeling isolated. The Word of God says, how will they know if you don't go? How will they know if you don't tell them? God, your word is calling us to take the truth of the reality that the foundation upon which our life needs to be uh, attached, born, is Jesus Christ. That he is that to which we all cling. That is our identity. That is who we follow. That is why we're not isolated. It's why we know where to go. Today, sitting in Twin Falls County Jail are men and women who find themselves in a place they never thought they were going to be. They're disoriented. They lost their identification. They're isolated. How will they know if someone doesn't tell them? And if you do and they don't hear, we can say, I have fulfilled the purpose for which God has brought me here. I have fulfilled the purpose for which the Lord has brought me into salvation. I am to go and make disciples of every nation. God, I pray that you would equip us as your church To do what you're calling us to. I pray that we first would bow our knee. And we would talk to others. About bowing theirs. And God that you would be glorified and magnified as we move forward. We want our world transformed. But we don't need a new Messiah. We don't need another king. We just need to bow to the one we have. I pray, God, that you be glorified in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.